You're listening to Michigan News from MLive on Friday, August 4th. I'm Patrick Shea. You might have noticed it's been a while since we've dropped an episode. Well, now we're relaunching the show with a new sound and obviously a new voice. I started working as MLive's lead podcast producer a couple months ago. I'm really excited to get this podcast up and running again and to work with such a strong team of reporters all over the state. From Manistique to Monroe, from Kalamazoo to Bay City, MLive and its eight newspapers have journalists all over Michigan. You can read their work at MLive.com, and you can listen to this show every Friday when I'll bring you an audio roundup of some of the week's biggest stories. Today on the show, we'll head towards the Indiana border, where a rural town tried to stop a major chain store from setting up shop. Then we'll hear about a Michigan Supreme Court ruling this week with implications for survivors of catastrophic car crashes. And finally, a rage room is opening in the Flint area, a place to let off steam by smashing things to pieces. That's all coming up on Michigan News from MLive. If you drive through your average rural Midwestern town, there's a few things you're almost certain to see. A church, a bar, and in recent history, a Dollar General. It's the most prolific retailer in the United States, with more than 19,000 locations across the country. And in rural Michigan, the yellow signs with black block letters have become almost ubiquitous. But one small community, near the Indiana border, tried to stop Dollar General from moving into town. Rose White is an economic reporter with MLive who covered this story, which you can read at MLive.com. Rose, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So the key word in that intro there is tried. It seems as if a Dollar General will be built in Nottawa Township after all, but break it down for us, Rose. Where is Nottawa and, and what happened between this community and Dollar General? Yeah, it all started last summer when a developer submitted a rezoning request to the Nottawa Township Board of Trustees. So they wanted to change a plot of land from agricultural to industrial use. Um, and so, like you mentioned, Nottawa Township is um, just north of the Indiana border. It's a, it's a pretty small rural agricultural town. And uh, the two, there's two public meetings that were held um, in response to that rezoning request, and both were full of dissenters. People didn't want to see a big box store in their small town. And other people pointed out that there's a Dollar General three miles west in Centerville. There's another one nine miles south in Sturgis. I think people just sort of question the need for it if there's so many already in the area. And so kind of what happened from there was the Board of Trustees decided not to okay the rezoning request. Um, And the residents kind of thought the story ended there. They felt like they had won this fight. Um, But then a month later, the board got hit with a federal lawsuit. A federal lawsuit. What grounds did Dollar General have for filing this lawsuit? And I guess what was the company's argument in this case? Uh, I guess maybe just for specifics, it wasn't Dollar General who filed the lawsuit. It was a developer. Um, So uh, Dollar General often works with developers who will um, purchase the property um, and be the landowners, and then Dollar General will build on that that land. So it was this developer who um, is Michigan-based, and they they were the ones who filed the lawsuit, and they claimed exclusionary zoning, um, that there was no reason for this property to not be rezoned since there's a lumber store across the street and there's other commercial 
areas in that stretch of land. And so, you know, I think sort of some of this legal back and forth, they eventually reached an agreement in January with the township and the township agreed to rezone it for commercial use um, and that it just kind of quietly got settled. Um, And so now construction's underway and the store is set to open in the fall. Those are all really great clarifications to get a better understanding of how this process sort of works. But now, what are some reasons that residents maybe would want to see the retailer set up shop in their town and maybe just in rural communities in general? I mean, surely there are some residents that that do want to see these stores built in their community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A Dollar General has said that they... Um, often set up shop in USDA-defined food deserts. So they're often being located in rural or extremely urban areas that don't have access to a grocery store. And Dollar General has never claimed to be a grocery store. They do not say they're a grocery store. They don't see themselves as as a replacement for that, but they do see themselves as an option. So in some of these areas where local and independent stores maybe have been closed for a long time, Dollar General does provide the basics. It provides, you know, your milk and your butter and your eggs and um, canned foods and things that people might have to travel a long distance to get otherwise. So I think for some people, it's something and something is better than nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely that's well put. And you mentioned that, you know, some residents just don't see the need for it when there are stores close by. And that makes me wonder, could you put this into a statewide context for us? How many Dollar Generals are there in Michigan? And I'm also curious to know how new of a trend this might be. Yeah, so in Michigan, there's almost 700 stores um, that we know of at this point. There might even be more from the last time that data was collected that have opened. Um, And just, you know, sort of on a national context, in 2021, nearly half of the new stores that opened in the United States were chain dollar stores. Um, so that's half of all new stores that opened. Um, and at the, at the beginning of last year, so when I refer to chain dollar stores, that also refers to Dollar Tree and Dollar General, the main main ones. So at the beginning of last year, those two chains operated more than 34,000 stores across the country. Um, and so that's a bigger retail footprint than McDonald's, Starbucks, Target, and Walmart combined. So we've just seen in the past four or five years a huge increase in the number of these chain dollar stores that have been able to set up shop. Part of that is pandemic-induced. Um, you know, they, they were able to operate as grocery stores. And also, you know, some economists have pointed to inflation. People are now turning to some of these discount dollar stores um, because of the pressure inflation has put on people's wallets. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, I didn't really realize the scope of of this trend we're seeing in in these stores being built. You mentioned there's over 700 in Michigan. I've also read that there's a Dollar General in every county in Michigan except for one. And and you've written a story about that as well. Rose, where won't you find a Dollar General in Michigan? Yeah, so it was a little bit of digging and looking into every uh, county to see where all the Dollar Generals were. And um, we, we found that only Leelanau County, which can be referred to as the pinky of Michigan, um, they don't have a Dollar General. And uh, a few years ago, Dollar General had tried to move into that county into two different communities um, and just sort of zoning laws and zoning regulations ended up keeping the dollar stores out. Um, And so it wasn't necessarily a concerted effort, but it was just sort of 
the laws that were already in place and the rules that were already in place made it difficult for this big box store to move into that small county that is heavy on tourism and is heavy on charm, really. So what's next? I mean, this Dollar General looks like it is going up in Nottawa Township, the community that you sort of profiled in your piece. But does the township have any recourse or is this Dollar General pretty much a sure thing there? It's pretty much a sure thing. Um, Construction has been going on, you know, the foundation's being laid, um, dirt's being moved. Um, And I think, you know, when I spoke with um, some uh, representation from the city, they were kind of like, the resistance was very local. It was the people who are in the immediate vicinity of the Dollar General. Um, And so they were kind of like, we'll see how it goes. There might be people who end up shopping here from, you know, some of the surrounding areas. Um, And sort of the real test of whether these stores are successful is if people shop there. Um, So there might be some people who resisted and and decide not to shop there and shop other places, but we'll just kind of see how it goes from from here. Sure. And the way that this Dollar General played out in this township. What kind of message do you think it sends to other communities that might not want to see a big box store on their main street? I think um, what some communities have found is they need to, if they are already reticent about the idea of a big box store in their community, that needs to be put into their zoning and master plan now and not once there's a zoning request or Dollar General's already moving in. Um, And I think that's kind of what became the unsung hero in Leelanau County was some of their zoning laws were already strict enough that this corporation was unable to move in. But, you know, I I think there's also room for um, public discourse on it like you mentioned and and like we talked about, there are people who benefit from this. And there were people in Leelanau County who say they have to drive 10 miles to get to the nearest grocery store and they see how their community might benefit from one. So there's definitely um, a a split on this and and people land on varying sides of of the need of a store like this. Rose White is an economic reporter for MLive. Her recent story about Nottawa Township is called A Michigan Town Didn't Want a Dollar General, Then It Got Sued. You can read that story and more of Rose's work at MLive.com. Rose, thanks for your time. Thank you. Michigan is home to thousands of people catastrophically injured in car crashes, requiring around-the-clock medical care. In recent years, these patients, their loved ones, and advocates have been fighting for better coverage of medical bills under Michigan's no-fault auto insurance law. Well, on Monday, a ruling in the Michigan Supreme Court applied to many of those patients. Simon Schuster is a political reporter with MLive in Lansing and has been covering this case. Hi, Simon. Hey, thanks for having me on, Patrick. So to understand Monday's Supreme Court ruling, I think we first have to go back to 2019. That's when a lot of the issues around medical coverage for crash survivors, or lack thereof, became really controversial. What changed in 2019? Yeah, so uh, Michigan has long been struggling with what are seen as exorbitantly high auto insurance rates, what we're seen as the highest in the nation. And so it's, uh, for many years, was viewed as sort of this intractable problem and uh, policymakers struggled to get their arms around it. Uh, In 2019, this uh, legislation emerged that was seen as sort of a fix to that. It was uh, cheered by the auto insurance industry and a bipartisan coalition of lawmakers voted for it. Uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed 
the uh, legislation on the porch of the Mackinac Islands Grand Hotel with uh, a bi- bipartisan uh, coalition of lawmakers surrounding her. Um, and he provided a number of changes, uh, but the, the most important one and the relevant one here is for a small subset of auto crash um, survivors, and those are the ones who are considered catastrophically injured. Um, now, your auto insurance will pay up to a certain amount uh, if you are injured in a car crash, but beyond that dollar amount, uh, then Michigan relies on a fund, the, the catastrophic claims fund, that everybody pays into through their auto insurance and is invested and is meant to handle these folks. Uh, now, the change that we saw in 2019 was that uh, they wanted to uh, amend the fees and, and the payouts that uh, health providers could receive from these claims. And so they were, it was decreased by 45%. Um, the issue that was faced and is the uh, subject in this lawsuit is whether that should apply to the individuals who were catastrophically injured before this legislation was enacted in 2019. That's some important context there. So with that in mind, let's now move to Monday in Lansing. Tell us a bit about the case that was before the Michigan Supreme Court. Yeah, so at at issue here, they focus on a couple of individuals who have been catastrophically injured. Um, And uh, essentially their argument was that the legislature had not intended to essentially have this apply retroactively, and that even if they had, it would have violated the uh, contracts clause of the Michigan Constitution, saying that because they'd entered in a contract that said, you know, they would be able to receive unlimited personal injury protection now and into the future, uh, that that was no longer going to apply, Um, that they can't essentially have that retroactively removed from them. Uh, And essentially, the Supreme Court uh, agreed with them on one of two counts. The Court of Appeals had agreed on both uh, those points. But the Supreme Court agreed on just the one, which is that they didn't see a clear intent from the legislature to apply retroactively. So essentially, these auto crash survivors are still going to be able to receive uh, the same treatment that they had received prior to this uh, reforms. And from the perspective of crash survivors and their advocates, this has been a long time coming. There have been multiple protests at the Capitol since 2019, pushing back against the change in Michigan's insurance laws, right? What were the goals of those protests? And will those protesters see Monday's ruling as a success? Sure. So the, the changes that have come about for uh, catastrophically injured crash survivors uh, have been really tangible. Um, because of this 45% decrease in the amount providers are paid, uh, they essentially have argued that they are no longer to live uh, active Uh, lives where they're engaged because they simply can't afford that support. Uh, People who needed around-the-clock care because they're uh, paralyzed either from the waist down or even quadriplegic, um, those, the amounts that caregivers were paid to, you know, watch them and and help take care of them was then uh, decreased significantly. And so we saw changes uh, in some individuals' lifestyles from uh, for example, having being able to live at home, work an around the work a regular nine to five job, uh, to essentially being shuttled between nursing homes or even sent to hospitals. Uh, Chad Livinger of the Detroit News reported on one individual whose health declined rapidly after uh, you know previously having a f- being able to enjoy a full life as a quadriplegic and uh, just died just minutes before this uh, ruling came out. Wow and. Now, what what about the other side of this argument? Attorneys representing insurance companies in Michigan raised concerns about the potential for what they call predatory pricing from from health providers. Could you break that down for us? What's the concern there? Sure. So part of the cost savings that was promised in this 2019 reforms is that prior to this, 
unlimited personal injury protection on an auto insurance policy was required. It was mandatory. Um, now you can opt out and receive uh, only partial injury protection, and supposedly this is meant to save individuals money. Um, but the fact that this was unlimited personal injury protection, uh, though organizations affiliated with insurance companies argued, that meant that um, health providers could uh, charge what uh, these attorneys deemed predatory prices, that things that were far above the norm and essentially um, multifold larger than what would be charged in regular circumstances. And so their uh, fear and argument is that, uh, you know, if that's allowed to continue for even people who were injured before the 2019 law, that this would be um, uh, essentially bring us back to the pre-reform era. Yeah, it's, it's a lot to sift through, a lot to get your head around. But Simon, for drivers injured after 2019, does this ruling change anything? What, what kind of coverage can more recent catastrophic crash survivors expect? Sure. So um, these individuals, the health, the the fee schedule to health providers that was instituted as part of this uh, 2019 law is still in effect for people who are catastrophically injured into the future, even if they purchase unlimited personal injury protection. Um, I think that this is something where we're going to have to see over time what sort of life circumstances those catastrophically injured will face uh, under uh, this new legislation relative to how individuals fare before these reforms. Well, Simon, I know it's something that you and other reporters will continue to keep an eye on as it continues to be a major issue in the Michigan courts. That was Simon Schuster, a political reporter with MLive in Lansing. You can read his full story on Monday's Supreme Court ruling at MLive.com. Simon, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me on, Patrick. Have you ever felt so stressed, so frustrated that you just wanted to break something, smash something to pieces? I think back to my angsty teenage years when I'd see clips of The Who and other rock stars breaking their instruments on stage, and I thought, wow, that looks like fun. Well, if that's you, there's a new business opening in the Flint area that might interest you. Fuad Shalhut is a business reporter for MLive in Flint and is here to tell us all about it. Hi, Fuad. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. So this business, it's called Destruction Depot 2. What is it exactly? Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny concept. So the the idea of the business is to basically, people people have everyday stress, everyday frustrations, whether it's family-related, work-related. So the owner came up with this idea to uh, start up a business so people could come in and just smash things and just release their stress and release their frustrations. The name of the business is Destruction Depot 2. That implies it's not the first rage room, as they call it, that they've opened. Where is the first Destruction Depot and has it been successful? Yeah, so he he opened up uh, his first Destruction Depot in Whitmore Lake, and it's going really well. He opened it uh, about five years ago, and everything's going well. He just wanted a second location, and he felt like Fenton was the spot for him because... As he mentioned in the article, there isn't really a whole lot to do in Fenton besides just going out to eat. And he just wanted an activity there for, for the people to kind of conglomerate to. And this, this is the spot he chose. And what's the target market here? Are these rage rooms for anybody? Yeah, it's, it's for anybody. Uh, really, uh, if, you, if you want you know, your child or whatever, they would have to be 13 and up. And you, you would have to have a supervisor with them, like a parent or garden, but anyone 13 and up uh, can come through and smash things, anything from 
TVs to computers to laptops, whatever the case may be. (laughs) And tell us a bit about the business owner and how they came up with this idea. Yeah, so uh, the business owner is named Matt Crawford. He's not specifically from Fenton, but he is from Michigan. And, you know, he he has a background in the Army. And um, so he, he kind of blew things up a lot, as he mentioned in the article, while he was in the Army, as you might imagine. And uh, once he left the Army, he was with his uh, girlfriend at the time on their date, and he was like, man, like, I wish I could, like, do that again, and it's unfortunate that I'm not. And then he was like, actually, he he wants to start up a business where people could actually do that, and she thought he was a little bit crazy. (laughs) And on their first date, uh, she said, you know, please just tell me you're not a loser. Please tell me you have some direction in your life. And, uh, you know, over time, he came up with the concept. And lo and behold, he has two locations now. So dating back to his days in the Army to kind of dreaming about this, he sat on this idea since like the mid-90s. Since 1996, he's been thinking about starting up Destruction Depot too, And over 20 years later, he has two locations now. Wow. And if a listener is interested in trying this out, when are they able to do so? Any idea when the grand opening will be? Yeah. So the the, the grand opening is in mid, the middle of August. There isn't a specific date yet, but should be somewhere between August 15 and August 18. Um, we are going to follow up with the business owner once everything is renovated inside. Uh, I'm live. We'll be there to take photos and to provide a behind the scenes look inside the company. And I think overall, like Fenton is experiencing a nice boom as of late. Like there was an arcade spot that opened up a few weeks ago. So it's not just restaurants anymore. We are starting to see a little bit more variety in the city. Sure. And so you're going to be going there following up. I got to know, are you looking forward to smashing some stuff? Are you going to try it out? Yeah, I'm going to try to smash some stuff. (laughs) I don't know what specifically. I might start with like a computer. And then I'll kind of work my way through there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. You, you could invite me back. I'll give you an update. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure MLive will appreciate you smashing one of their old laptops instead of your work laptop, right? Yes. I'll, 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 well, we can't actually, one thing to note for people out there, you can't bring your own equipment to smash. So you could only use the equipment that's provided by Destruction Depot too. That's good to clarify. Yes. So, so that's just an important note for, to point out. Because otherwise it's just sort of like a dump, <laughs> a landfill. <laughs> yes. And they've had dangerous situations of people bringing in things there in the past at their first location and, and nearly like calling on fire. So right now they're only using their own equipment. Fuad Shalhoud is a business reporter with MLive by way of the Flint Journal. You can read his story about the Destruction Depot 2 at MLive.com. Thanks, Fuad. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate it. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Michigan News from MLive. As always, you can find out more about these stories and so many others at MLive.com. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all of it. I'm Patrick Shea. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend.